All right. We are going to continue our series on embracing singleness this morning. Um, why don't we begin with the passage? If you have your Bible, you're going to want to open up to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning and you'd like to follow along right in the pew in front of you, you should see a Bible that is yours to use. Uh, and if you need one and you'd like to take it with you, yours to keep, although pew Bibles are not really great Bibles to have around the house. Um, so maybe yours to borrow until you get a decent one. Uh, but nonetheless, it's there. There's an index right in the front that will help you find the New Testament Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in chapter 10. Jesus has just said to the disciples some very hard to hear things about wealth. He's been talking about riches. And Peter recognizes an opportunity to distinguish himself from others. And so Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into, he into heaven. And Peter steps up in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, and he began to say to him, see, we've left everything and we follow you. And Jesus said to you, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, you have given us your word and you have also promised us your spirit who will guide us in all truth, who will teach us and instruct us, who will be a light in the dark places, who will clear up confusion and who will guide us in the way of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that that spirit would be present and working this morning. We ask God and we give you access to our ears and to our hearts and to our mind. We pray that you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. When you first read this, the thing that kind of pops out, if you're an American, is the promise of houses and property and land. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear some of these verses or parallel passages in the other Gospels quoted uh, with a presentation that basically says, God wants your best life now. He wants to give you all the best things, and if you just believe, it's mansions and private jets and the like. But what I really want to draw your attention to this morning is how most of this list is focused not on property, but on family. In fact, I would suggest to you that the idea of houses here is the idea of a home. And the idea of land here is the idea of a homeland, that you will become a citizen of other nations, uh, a part of different tribes. That's the emphasis here, okay? But I do want to draw your attention to the most significant aspect here, which is at the end of verse 30. 
uh, he says uh, in 30, those who leave all these things for my sake and for the gospel, verse 30, who will not receive, none of them will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. And then eternal life. So what Jesus says is not merely anything you leave in this life when weighed against the scales of eternity won't be that big of a deal, right? He says other things in other places. He says, count the cost, watch out, because many would give the entire world to save their own soul. What does it benefit you if you gain everything and lose yourself in the process, right? So that would be appropriate, but he says, on top of, and then eternal life, you also will receive in this time brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and homes, houses, and lands that become your homeland, and then eternal life. Okay. Now here's the thing. We need to lay a little bit of a foundation this morning. I think if you were working through an online class this morning, you know when the lectures sometimes say beginner level and then other lectures say advanced, this may be a little advanced, okay? But it'll be worthwhile and it has to be done, okay? And the reason it has to be done is because as we've been focusing on singleness, we've done so looking at it from different angles. The first week we looked at the fact, uh, we've looked at the fact uh, or through the lens of a life without sex which is implied by the Christian ethic of singleness. In fact, the Christian ethic as a whole is uh, that sex was created to exist in the context of the marriage between a man and a woman, uh, and that sex outside of those boundaries at all goes against the grain of its design. And so the choices then are a life of celibacy or marriage, okay? Uh, and so the first part we talked about was uh, was embracing singleness as a life without sex. And we talked about the fact that Jesus lived that life fully and freely, completely pleasing to God, completely satisfying to himself. We talked about the idolatry of sexuality in our world that sees that as primary. Okay. The next week we talked about singleness as being a life without marriage. Another thing that our culture tends to elevate and see as primary, uh, and yet we saw, according to Paul, uh, that he would recommend that most people would consider singleness because in his words, it's better. We wrestled with that. We thought through that. The last one we need to talk about is this concept of family. Okay. Now, those three pieces, those are at the heartbeat of sexuality from a Christian understanding. Throughout history, Christian uh, writers and thinkers have pointed to three facets of sexuality in a Christian understanding. The erotic element, the sexual element, the unitive element. Remember Genesis, the two become one flesh, the unifying reality of marriage, and finally the procreative element, okay? That's the one we're going to focus on this morning is that last one, but here's the sticky wicket. Here's the problem, okay? Our time is probably the least predisposed to understand this part, and it's for two primary reasons, okay? One is because we don't generally think as procreation as being a primary part of our sexual ethic at all. For many, the option to have sex and have children are separate, 
The option to have sex, or excuse me, to get married and have children are separate. They're separate decision lines, okay? Uh, when we read Jesus speaking to his disciples and they say, if what you say about the rigidity and the permanence of marriage is true, that what God has joined together, no man should separate. If you're so strong on divorce and the permanency of marriage, then maybe it's better for us not to get married. And he responds, only some can receive this saying. And then he begins to talk about eunuchs. We generally think about that either in the loss of sex or in the loss of marriage. But I promise you, Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19 are thinking about children. They're thinking about children. In fact, that's the important part of a eunuch. A eunuch wasn't someone who couldn't have sexual relations. A eunuch was someone through, who, through castration, was removed from the possibility of having children. Okay? And so when we live in a world that doesn't uh, naturally, through contraceptive means, through changes in our ide ideology, when we naturally leave room between those things, when, if I can illustrate and embarrass myself at the same time, uh, recently, uh, within the last year, I was watching an episode of Fuller House, okay? And in it, Stephanie, now an adult, discovers that she has reproductive problems, She's never gotten married, and she starts to realize that the possibility of having children is closed. She's grieved by her infertility. A little bit later, a season later, she finds out that there actually is a small opportunity for her through surrogacy, her egg and another woman's body, to have a child. That, that the, the problem that she has is with the pregnancy itself, and that she still has, I think in the language of the show, a few good eggs left, okay? Now, once again, lots of new, lots of novel in that. Surrogacy in the significance of your genetic child in the body of another, new stuff, right? But more importantly, she then decides if she's going to have a child, and although she's in a committed relationship with her boyfriend, both does not tell him that she's considering having a child and does not even think of going to him as the sperm donor but instead is in planning on employing a sperm bank. And her reason she gives is because it's too big of a commitment and an ask to ask her boyfriend to step into fatherhood. New, completely new way of thinking about these things, okay? Um, as we will see, biblically this is different, but there's another problem, okay? The other problem is that in the church, in fact, if you were to make a contrast, if you were to define Christian values in contrast with the world, if Christians were to define that for themselves, oftentimes that bleeds directly into family values. Okay? And so on one side, the significance of having children or even hearing that in the text and the importance or in the loss of singleness, for our culture, we skip a beat. And within the church, we have a tendency to uh, value family in a way that makes it hard to hear what's going on here, okay? Because uh, here's the thing. Focus on the Family was this organization uh, that did just that. James Dobson and his crew made a great emphasis of the danger that America was in because of the neglect of the family, okay? Of maintaining appropriate boundaries, of pursuing family values. The thing is, 
Jesus, at least based on the words we have recorded for us in the Gospels, would not have made a good speaker at a Focus on the Family conference. Okay. Think with me, if you've read the Gospels through, think with me of, of the good things that Jesus said about the family. Now, I will give you a freebie. He does come to the Pharisees who have decided to neglect their responsibility to take care of their elderly parents and instead take that money that should be supporting them and give it to the temple as an act of worship, and he calls them out. And he says, you know honor your father and mother is the baseline, and yet you reject God's word for the traditions of men. Okay? But now I've pretty much exhausted it. Here are the things that Jesus generally says about family. In Luke chapter 4, he says, unless... Actually, let's save that one. Let's, let's do this one, okay? Let's look at how Jesus handles his own family. Right here in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 3, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus' brothers and his mother Mary come looking for him. In fact, they are concerned about him, and so they've literally come to take him home. But he is so surrounded by a crowd, a jam-packed house, that they can't get through the front door. And so, as you can imagine, as you've probably been in a, a really crowded situation, starts to come up one person at a time to the front of the room. And eventually it gets to Jesus. And so notice here, verse 32 of chapter 3, a crowd was uh, sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about here at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Okay, I don't know about your mother, but my mother would not be happy. Consider uh, another occasion. Here, a man comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I really want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. Now, don't mistake that. He's not saying, my dad just died, the funeral's on Saturday, can I start work on Monday? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, my dad is old, my responsibility is to take care of him until he dies. Let me wait until he's dead, and then I'm freed up to follow you. And Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead, as for you, follow me. Really? Okay. In Luke, he says this. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you hate your brother and sister, your mother and father, your husband or your wife, yes, even your own self, you cannot be my disciple. Now, we need to be careful there. In Semitic idiom, in the, the language of the Hebrews and the cultures that were around them, Love and hate, uh, when used together as Jesus uses them there, is not one of attitude, okay? And so he's not saying that you need to despise your parents or your spouse. He's not saying that you should treat them poorly. Remember, he defended the parents of the Pharisees and said that that was inappropriate. He believes in honor your father and mother. What he's doing is prioritizing. And he's saying, if there's a choice between pleasing your parents or pleasing your spouse or pleasing your brothers and sisters and pleasing me. You have to please me or you can't be my disciple. He's saying the allegiance to Jesus Christ has to outstrip any other relational allegiance in your life, including the ones that you inherited by blood. Again, your mother may have reminded you that she carried you in her body for nine months. Okay. But Jesus draws a line in the sand. In fact, as we move throughout the New Testament, the advice given to parents is relatively minimal. 
a couple of verses in Colossians, a couple of verses, verses, verses in Ephesians, that's it. But here's the thing. The most significant passage, again, is the one we started this series with in Matthew 19. When Jesus upholds the eunuch and those who would be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what you have to understand. In Judaism, faithfulness to the covenant that God had given Israel required, required procreation. It required it. The Pharisees, who Jesus is always talking with, the ones who were trying to maintain the traditions of their elders and hold on to being obedient to the law of God, cited 613 commandments that all Jewish men had to obey to keep the law. The first one on the list, and the first one we find in our Bible, is in Genesis 2 when it says, be fruitful and multiply. This was so significant that we have rabbis who say things like, you are not yet a man until the birth of your first child. Okay. When Jesus holds up the way of a eunuch, he's doing so despite the fact that eunuchs in the Old Testament weren't allowed to enter into the temple. Okay. And we go, why? What's the big deal? And then more importantly, how is it that we get from that focus in, yes, Jewish thinking, but also our Old Testament, to where Jesus is today? How is it that Jesus can be so radically different? Is he throwing out and rejecting? No. But we do need to understand the flow of thought here, okay? So, go back thousands of years before Jesus to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to take you, I'm going to take your barren wife, and I'm going to give you descendants more than you can number, and I'm going to bless abundantly those descendants. The very first promise God gives to Abraham involves two things that are really significant. One, the future. And two, children having children having children. And do you see how those are the links in the chain that connect those two things together? The promises that God gave Abraham of a land and of a people and of a covenant all need procreation to enjoy them, okay? He says, I am going to bless your seed, your offspring, your children, your descendants. Okay, that's the focus. Now, that future orientation continues throughout all of Israel. All of Israel is awaiting what God will do, and the way that you get to partake in it is to have children there to see it. Israel, think of this, uh, Israel comes into the land, and it's not like our real estate market, is it? God divvies up a land, and every family is given a parcel, and how does that parcel continue on? Through the line of the children. It's theirs perpetually, permanently, okay? Their connection with the land involves kids who inherit it. If you read Deuteronomy 28, where God talks about the blessings of obedience of the covenant, the first one on the list is I will make you fruitful in childbirth. And so if you want to know, how is Israel doing in the covenant? How obedient are they being? You go, how, what's the birth rate like? That was a blessing that demonstrated their obedience. Okay. Because of this, infertility was seen as a horrible, 
circumstance. Some facets of Judaism historically saw infertility as grounds for divorce. That's how important procreation was. Okay. It is in that setting that Jesus speaks about family in this way. Remember, Jesus doesn't take a wife. Jesus doesn't have any kids. It's not, and I want to be clear here, Jesus is not anti-family, but he prioritizes something else. Okay. But how does this work? What's changed? In fact, aren't we following in the footsteps of Abraham? Don't we serve the same God? Aren't we on the same mission? Why do we see this transition in the New Testament? Why does Jesus draw such radical lines and open up a complete new way of being? Why does he elevate singleness as being a faithful way to follow God despite the fact that it doesn't involve procreation? For that, we have to turn to Galatians. And here's the thing, if we're turning to Galatians, that means this question about procreation is literally a gospel issue. Because that's what Galatians is all about. It's about the centerpiece of the gospel. Okay. So turn with me to Galatians. As I mentioned to you, God has made these promises to Israel that involve the future, that involve offspring. Israel participates in those promises, expresses their expectation in those promises, enters into the fulfillment of those promises through procreation, through having children. As Genesis 12 says, your offspring, your seed, I will bless. Okay. But I want you to notice what Paul explains here in Galatians. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but offspring, referring to one. Okay. Here's what Paul is suggesting here. He's saying all the promises that were given to Abraham are bound up in a single descendant. Not all the descendants, but a single one. That's Jesus Christ. Okay. In fact, if you follow the whole narrative of the Old Testament, God's promise begins relatively broad and general. There's going to be blessing. It's going to be through your offspring, through your seed, Abraham. But then it starts to fill out. He's going to be a righteous judge and a peaceful king. He's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who's going to deal with the forgiveness need. All of these things start to fill in, and it starts to narrow, and it starts to focus. Okay. The great honor that every woman in Israel wanted for themselves throughout their whole history was to be the mother of the Messiah. Any one of their children could have been the one, the one who was to come. Even Eve, in the very beginning, after the first promise is given, God says, I'm going to use the seed of woman to set everything right. And so Eve has her first child, and she says, literally in the Hebrew, I've received a man, the Lord. She goes, this is him. Now she was wrong, it was Cain, and he was a murderer. Okay. Lamech, Noah's dad, has the same type of thinking. Noah is born, and he names him Noah, which means rest. He says, ah, finally, I have given birth to Noah. He will give rest to the world. But he was wrong. 
Noah's the only survivor of a worldwide flood. Okay. But the expectation, the longing is there. Okay. To participate in what God was going to do for Israel, you had to enter into the covenant through having children. But now, as Paul points out, Christ has come. And all the blessings of God are available to all of us, not through us birthing children to participate in that expectation, but by being grafted into Christ himself. In fact, notice what Paul says a little bit later in Galatians. Look at, uh, look at verse 29. If you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, especially for most of us here who don't come of Jewish descent, this is really good news. Because when the plan begins and it's all about Israel, how do you fit into the family of Abraham? You don't. And there's no fixing that because you only get to be born once. And you were born in the wrong bloodline, in the wrong place, apart from the family that God has promised all the promises to. But all the way back in Genesis 12, mysteriously, God says, through you, and your descendants, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here we see how. Because when you come into a relationship of Jesus Christ, you become a descendant, a child of Abraham. Do you remember the, the things that God says to Abraham uh, when he's discouraged because he's had this promise now for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, and still doesn't have a child? And he asks God about it. He says, God, you say, you say you're going to give me offspring. You say you're going to bless my offspring. Right now, my servant in my house, he gets everything. He's the only person in my will. And God says, Abraham, come outside. He says, look up at the sky. He says, go ahead, see all those stars, count them if you can. And remember, no Seattle light pollution. This is, this is the one you see in the nature shows that you've never actually seen in real life. It's that sky, okay? He says, count them if you can. He says, that's going to be the number of your descendants. He says, look at the sand on the seashore. That's going to be the number of your descendants. Okay. But that comes through a narrowing down to a single descendant, the descendant, the seed, the offspring, the one in whom all the blessings of Abraham are made real, come true readily dispensed and fully available and then through belief in Jesus Christ we have all of it in fact this is what Paul says about each one of you who believe in Jesus this morning blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus it's all yours every ounce and facet of it Every promise made to Abraham and his descendants we enter into because we are in Christ. But it gets bigger than that. I'm not just saying you've been adopted into the Jewish promises, into the Jewish family, as Paul says, grafted into the tree of God's family. But notice what is said next in chapter 4. Galatians 4 still. Chapter 4, listen to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Now pause. 
Is that adoption into Abraham's family? No, it's something even more. Look at the next verse. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Through Jesus Christ, you don't just join the family of Abraham, you join the family of God himself. Through Jesus Christ, you're grafted not just into the family of Judaism and all of those promises, you become an adopted child of God. Okay. In other words, even though I've titled this, Don't Focus on the Family, what we see going back to Mark and what we'll see in just a second is what Jesus is really saying is focus on the real family, the greater family, the most significant family. Now, if you read the New Testament, you will see family language used for the church abundantly. Okay, we forget this because if you grow up in a religious setting, We, we may forget this if you grow up in a religious setting because you get used to the language of brothers and sisters. So remember with me, those of you who work in a large corporation, is that how you're addressed? Brothers and sisters? Okay, we may see it in the strongest forms of nationalism sometimes. But we forget how foreign it is that Paul writes to people sometimes he's never met and takes our most intimate inner circle of kinship and uses that language to address them, brothers and sisters. He counsels a young pastor by the name of Timothy. He says, Timothy, in your church, treat the older men in your church like fathers. Treat the older women like mothers. Treat the younger men like brothers and the younger women like sisters. Now, why can you guess the filling of that? Because he's being consistent in his metaphor, isn't he? And what is it? It's family. He says the church should behave like, it should be like, it should be a family. Okay. Now, now we are equipped to go back to Mark chapter 10 and understand what Jesus is saying. Remember, Peter comes and he says, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. And he says, actually, you've gained quite a lot. Peter wants Jesus to see the cost. Look at me, Jesus. Look at what I've given up to follow you. And Jesus says, let me remind you of what you've gained. And I love this passage because he, in, the, in, in the end, he makes this slight little aside. He's like, don't forget about eternal life. You, you also have restoration with the God who created you and everything that that entails for eternity, untouchable, unforsakable, unbreakable. But he says on top of that, there's not a single person who will walk away from their families, who will be rejected by their families, who will be kicked out of their homes. Not a single one who, because of the kingdom and the gospel, will move far away from their family of origin. All of these things are implied in what he's saying. There's not a single one who would identify before Jesus as not having a home, of not having a family. There's not a single one who in this life will receive a hundredfold houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Family. Promised by Jesus because it's all bound up in him. Now, here's the thing. 
what makes us a family is not our choice to be a family. And that's really actually important. It's really significant. Maybe you've heard the term in the last few decades, chosen family. There's a lot of people who know what rejection is like. There's a lot of people who know what a lack of support is like. There's a lot of people who have felt estranged or even have been literally removed, blacklisted, scratched off the rolls of family. And so they found communities that will support them, that will love them, that will encourage them, and they've adopted this language of chosen family, right? In fact, there's, there's a mild contrast in that word chosen, isn't it? I didn't choose these people. I was stuck with these people. But this is my chosen family. It would be easy to think that what we're talking about in the church is the same thing. As Christians, we're like-minded. As Christians, we're all headed in the same direction. As Christians, we have a lot in common, so let's choose to do this together because it's easier together than alone. But that's not actually how this works. In fact, that's the problem with the phrase chosen family because what makes your family family, to some degree, is that you didn't choose them. Okay, when we say things like blood is thicker than water, and I still don't know what the water metaphorically refers to in that saying, as much as attached we are to it, what is the water relationship that we're talking about? But, but the significance of your family is that you were born into it, you didn't choose it. That's what makes the love of a parent so overwhelmingly amazing, is that it is determined before the person is around. When we say you are my son or you are my daughter, we say something so much more significant in one sense than you are my friend. Because there's no choice involved. That relationship in, in, in a most important sense, I would, even, I would even argue in a definitive sense, cannot be broken. And sometimes we communicate this, you will always be my child. The church is actually closer to that than it is to this idea of chosen family. Because the truth is, you don't get to choose who's in the family of Christ. In fact, you didn't come because of the family. You were just born into it. You were just adopted into it. And think of all of the occasions throughout church history, in relationships you've known, even in your personal life, where if you had the choice, you would have left someone off the roster. Think of Corey Ten Boom, who suffered in a concentration camp and watched her sister die in that concentration camp, but had such an encounter with God's goodness and love, even in the midst of such dark time, set out in post-World War II Germany to invite people into the love of Christ and the forgiveness available. And imagine what it'd be like the day when she had a man approach her after she'd finished speaking and stick out his hand and say, Fraulein, the message you've given of forgiveness is one that I need very much. I'm so grateful to have it. And she reached for his hand and he, she looked in his eyes and she remembered him from that concentration camp. She knew that he was there and that it was under his watch and by his hand she'd lost her sister. It's a little intense, isn't it? And if you read The Hiding Place, this is at the very end of it, she says, at that moment, there was nothing I could do to love that man. And every word that had come out of my mouth of forgiveness, of reconciliation, just laid at my feet as dead. 
And she said, God, I know that I can't love this man, but you can. Please love him through me. And she has a pretty radical experience. She says it was like warmth flowing up through her body and reaching out, and she pulled the man into an embrace, and they both began to cry. But she didn't choose her family. Okay. There's another way that it's different. Our family here, the Christian family, it's a family of covenant. So is your family of origin. So is family by God's design. It's marriage and the covenant of marriage and that commitment that shapes the whole family. In the same way, you make a covenant with Christ. You become one with him and that shapes the family. It's mixing metaphors here, but each and every one of you are married to Christ, right? That's how Paul puts it. Collectively, we are the bride of Christ. And once again, I, forgive me for mixing metaphors, but that's also what makes us family. It's that commitment that shapes the relationship that we have, that defines it, okay? Now, on top of that, in the same way that that covenant is marked by an entrance, we call it a wedding, so is the church. We call it baptism. And we miss this element a lot because we individualize our relationship with Christ, and so baptism is about me and Jesus. Or maybe baptism is about me and Jesus and I do it before everybody else. But since the beginning, in the New Testament, and especially in the first, second, third century, baptism is your entrance and your membership into the church. When they had catchumen, people who were exploring Christianity, the first thing they do when they would, would receive Christ is be baptized and join the membership of the church. It was the front door. When we partake of communion, this is effectively a covenant renewal ceremony. It says again what you said one time, that Jesus is your life, that his death has given you life, that you were nourished by his body that was broken, that the new covenant is available in his blood and you partake again, you renew your vows, you re-remember these things, but remember, Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians on communion is do not partake of this unless you rightly discern the body of Christ. Not this body of Christ, this one. Because by eating this, we all become one. This is why the New Testament reiterates and reiterates and emphasizes unity and the significance of really loving one another. John says, if you say to a brother, I love you, He's not talking about your brother that you grew up in bunk beds with at home as a kid. He's talking about the person sitting next to you. If he says, if you say, I love you, and you say, go, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them the food that they need or the clothing on their back, what good is that love? Why the emphasis there? Why the constant repetition of these things? It's because what we have here is a covenant family. Jesus is the hub at the center. Each one of us is spokes, and what keeps us intact, what connects us, is our relationship with Jesus. But that relationship, according to Jesus, makes us fully and completely family. Now, we haven't talked about singleness at all, but can you see where this is going? Do you see how it changes the potential and the possibility, the goodness, and even the fruitfulness and full fullness of singleness? It's because the church should be such a family that it makes marriage and children optional. Listen to me. According to Christianity, 
Sex is optional. Marriage is optional. Family and children is optional. Membership in the body of Christ, not optional. Now, again, Jesus isn't anti-family. And the suggestion isn't here that you should get a divorce or disown your kids or even avoid marriage and family like the plague because you have something else. That's not the suggestion. You also need to remember here that Christianity comes from the God who identifies himself as the Old Testament to the, as the father to who? The fatherless and the defender of widows. The church is also significantly to be a place of family for those who have none. Okay. Here's where I want to leave you in Jesus' words. Let's read it again. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is none who had left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands. If you're reading that this morning, you need to understand that Jesus promises for those who have no family, for those who go abroad and leave their families of origin for the sake of the kingdom, for those who are rejected by their families because they're followers of Christ, he promises them a blessing. And it's us. We are to be that blessing. And you need to recognize how much that challenges so many things that run deeply in your subconscious about the good life. Your home cannot be your castle. It cannot be the place you retreat to. It cannot be the thing you aspire to and everything else is just to give you this private little kingdom at home and these things be true. This is why the New Testament emphasizes hospitality and even hospitality to strangers because your home becomes a home for others. Okay. Your family, your bloodlines, your race cannot be the primary determinant of who you are and who you hang out with and who you love and who you feed and who you invite into your life and who you rejoice with and who you weep with because the blood of Christ is more central, it's more focused, it is the definition, it gives us a new identity and collectively we become the family of God. The blessing that's implied here implies a surprising level of deep relationship between people who only have Christ in common. I was just at Revoice. Revoice is a conference for effectively, if I can just summarize it, celibate gay Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus and because of the way they read scripture and because of their convictions, believe that what's open to them is either what we would call a mixed orientation marriage or a life of singleness and celibacy. What we've just talked about this morning is very significant to them. It's definitive of if we're condemning them to a life of horror and loneliness that the world will never understand or a hidden blessing that the world will never understand. They talked throughout the conference over and over again about their family, the one that was sitting in the room with them. 
the one that was opening their homes to one another, loving one another. And one of the speakers pointed this out, that in the mouth of Jesus Christ, he has an opportunity to label the greatest love. To just define it. Here it is. Here is the one that's most important. Here is the one that should be subscribed to. Here is the one that beats out all others. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus says, than the love of a husband for a wife. Mm -mm. Than the love of a father for his child. Nope. Greater love has no man than this, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. Just let that sit. The reason why I've taken so much time to lay the foundation to work through this slowly is because the misunderstandings that we've inherited by our culture inside and outside the church run really deep. They determine your life and you've never thought them through. Do you know what to do with Jesus' statement where he says this is the greatest love? When he elevates friendship over family. This is the blessing that Jesus promises. This is the new thing that's available. And listen, I know many of you have no relationship with your family of origin. It's just been shattered by their sin, by your sin, because you're a Christian, because of distance, whatever. And none of us have families that are fully intact, completely unmarred from the reality of the fall and the frustration of sin and difficulty and the curse. Our church, Calvary Chapel, uh, Calvary the Hill, is part of this family of churches called Calvary Chapel that came out of the hippie movement, the Jesus movement in particular, when all of these people who were feeling just so much and responding to it by looking for love, looking for community, looking for family, and then they started becoming Christians, and this is how they spoke of the Church of Christ. They called it God's forever family. This means if you're single this morning, you are free to focus on this family. You don't need to feel the weight of the American dream of a wife and a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. And if you're married and if you have a family, remember that it can't be your everything. Listen. I don't know how we fall into this trap because we do it over and over again. We make the same mistakes our parents made. You all know what it's like when the well-being and the happiness and the future and the fate and the security of your parents is bound up on you. When we make our kids our everything, we crush them. And then we just sign up for another go. But if Christ is the satisfaction, the center, the focal point of our family, if the gospel is real and true and gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and then we say, now can we love one another? It is literally a different game. I heard a pastor say once, when you understand the gospel, it causes you to need people less and love them more. And there's a truth there. 
but don't ever forget that you were divinely designed to need a family. When God, presiding over Adam in the garden, says it's not good that man should be alone, he solves that problem in three different ways. He makes for Adam a male, a female. It wasn't good for merely male. Male and female in the image of God. He also gives for Adam a wife. But ultimately, he gives Adam a family. And the other two are just how we get to that end. And that's why marriage will pass away, Jesus says. That's why sex will pass away. But this family that we're talking about, it's God's forever family. It's permanent. It's the end game. It's what God was all about. Let's pray. Father, I find this thought in my head that says, if this is God's great blessing and promise, if this is God's great good gift, then why is it so hard? And why are other Christians I know sometimes so mean? And why doesn't anyone ever call to check in on me? And why do I feel so alone? And the truth is, Lord, we all live in the midst of this now but not yet reality that God has begun a good work and he will be faithful to complete it, and we live between those two places. But it's not that you've called us to aspire to unity. You've called us to live it out. You've already given it. You've already grafted it in. You've already united us all to Christ, and since we all share the same head, we are one body. Since we all share the same Father, we are one family. Since we all share the same baptism, we are one church. And I pray, Lord, practically and pragmatically, I beg you by your grace, through the power of your spirit to bring conviction when we are moving in the wrong direction, through the empowerment of your spirit so that we can love one another freely and fully in Christ, I pray that you would make us a church where family, in the sense that we've talked about this morning, the pursuit of family as a goal is truly optional. Not just theoretically, but in practice. I pray, Lord, that people, all of us, would be so well-loved here that we could consider pragmatically, practically, is a life of singleness a better way to live? I ask, Lord, that every person here who's not a parent would recognize that the children in this church are their children. And that the saying, it takes a village to raise a child, may or may not be true, but you've designed it that the church has children in it, people younger than us, and elders, mothers and fathers in the faith who we need. As Paul says, that we can't look around the room and say to any individual person, you are the one we don't need here. Because you've so designed the body that each has a different role, each plays a different part, and each part is necessary. And so when everyone does its own part, as it says in Ephesians, we build up the body in love. Lord, I feel like the message you've given us this morning, the thinking through these things is something we need to just sit with for a long time. 
that its applications and implications, that the deep hurts and pains of misunderstandings, that the missteps that need to be repented of run so deep. But again, we stand on the reality that first and foremost, our ability to act like a family doesn't determine if we are one. Because you have made us a family in Jesus Christ. Fact. And second, that you were working in us, that you were faithful to do so, that you were committed to developing this community built on the foundation and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, a living temple, each stone having a purpose in praising God as the community that he envisioned, the one that will stand around the throne from all tribes and all tongues and all ethnicities and all nations and say together, we are your children. Worthy are you to be praised. Broaden our vision for these things, Lord. Help us to repent of the over-evaluation of family and the under-evaluation that makes, makes having kids an option on our well-being, a way for us to find fulfillment and gratis, uh, gratification instead of an expression, an image, a window into your big plan and salvation to make a family and a unique participation into that. And I pray for any who's not a Christian this morning and all I can feel, all I can imagine is, is the contrast of, well, that sounds great, but I'm not sure I believe it. I'm not sure it's actually here. I'm not sure it's actually real. It sounds like a fairy tale. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that we'd be a good church that helps them to see your love in us and that, that by that they would know you're my disciples, like Jesus says. But I pray more importantly, Lord, that you would show who you really are. Because when you do that, everything else falls into place. This is what we ask for this morning. Humbly but desperately, in Jesus' name, amen.